This is the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast, the podcast you can play on an infinite loop. My name is Matt Wolf, and I'll be your host. Our topic for this podcast is loops in game design. And with me tonight are two designers who will be completely loopy by the end of the episode. First up is Burke Drew. Hey, Burke. Hey, how's it going, Matt? <laughs> He's already loopy. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also with us is Drew Hicks. Hey, Drew. Hey, Matt. We got the Drew to Drew connection. Ah, I got that oh, joke out of the way. Get, That's a good one. Up. Yeah. All right, so <laughs> <laughs> let's move right into our first segment, which is what's in the oven. So, Burke, what you've been working on lately? Okay, so yeah, this time in the oven, I've got a game that I've been working on uh, off and on for you know, a month or two called uh, Dungeon Bed and Breakfast. And so I'm back after Unpub, I'm getting back into actually working on it more steadily so I can start getting it to the table more regularly and start making some good progress on it so that's the thing i've got in the oven currently cool yeah i love the theme and i think the uh the idea of a a bed and breakfast with like dungeon crawling is fantastic so hopefully you'll get to get that in a real good state and we'll, we'll get to play it pretty soon yeah hopefully so that's my plan all right andrew what have you been working on lately well, since Unpub 6, I made a bunch of changes to Access, um, which is my tile-laying, network-building, vaguely pick-up-and-deliver-style game. So there are a number of different ways that I think movement could work that could be clearer to players. And I've been testing those out and trying to figure out which of them is sort of the most easily communicated, because that seems to be the roughest spot in that game right now. Other thing I've been working on is I have a previous design, which has been called things like Out on a Limb and Oolong, that I'm retheming to be about waiter carrying too many dishes in a restaurant. So that's called Garçon now, I think. And <laughs> No I one's have... going to be able to know how to spell that with, that with that weird C that's in Garçon. Garçon? Yeah, well, they'll just see the guy on the cover and they'll know. They'll be like, oh, yeah, that word. Oh, you could call it um, Big Easy Bussing Tables. <laughs> hey, yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> i got to wait till Josh Mills has his game published, and then I'll use those cards for the prototype, and that'll work out. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that's what I've been, what I've been doing mostly. So you're uh, enjoying the quote-unquote fun of development with uh, Access. Woo! Yeah. All right. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a good time. <laughs> All right, and that is going to take us straight into our main topic, which is loops in game design. So when we're talking about loops, we're actually going to talk about a couple different uh, types, and hopefully we're going to be able to clearly articulate uh, the different types. We'll find out. What we found in kind of researching this topic is there's a little bit of term overload, and I th at least in my opinion, and, oh, for sure. And yeah. there's there's also like a lot of nebulous terms. So hopefully we'll be able to uh, have a good discussion here that will be sensible. But if we if we don't, that means that we really did indeed uh, go loopy. All right. So let's uh, define the types of loops that we're going to talk about here. Uh, the first one is what we're calling a core design loop. Either of you want to take a shot at defining that? Yeah, sure. I'll I'll, I'll take a crack at it. 
So my experience when someone's talking about the core loop of a game, assuming they're talking about a tabletop game, what they're talking about is essentially the sequence of actions that a player is going to repeat most frequently, like the smallest repeatable sequence of actions that a player takes during the game. So a lot of the time that overlaps with one of the game's core mechanics. Not always, so you could have a game like, let's say, Trajan is a really wonky example, where Trajan has a lot of mechanics things like uh, the area control and the blocking and building and the what's the area where you, I don't know the, there's set collection where you're building the it. town yeah there's set yeah. collection all these different kinds of things but the primary thing that you're doing on your turn is operating your mancala to take an action and get some reward right. from that and so that would be the core loop of the game in my understanding of that term I agree yeah yeah, yeah. I think is that that's what you're focused on, and that's where you're. Uh, that's driving everything else in that game. Yeah. How about you, Burke? Any any differing definition, or do you agree with Drew? That sounds about right to me. All right. So let's talk about the core design loop. So Drew already said that you know it, it's kind of like the repeatable action, and some people might refer to this as the atom of a game. Um, if, if you've heard that term, you know where you can sort of break down a game into the smallest component that you can that you repeatedly do. Okay. So yeah, so if you're if you're familiar more familiar with Adam, I think core design loop is almost uh synonymous, maybe not exactly, but I think it's really close. And so if you think of something like, you know, if you need a simpler example, something like love letter, you know, draw a card, play a card and then do the action on the card, like that's that's your core design loop uh, in love letter. Are there any other examples we want to call out that might have like a really easily understandable core design loop or maybe ones that might need a little bit of discussion that we can kind of find uh, the core? I don't know. Burke, do you have an example in mind? Going with something like love letters is, is good. It's nice and, and simple to start off with the conversation. So, yeah. So in that one, the basic... I guess you want to just, I guess, go into what the basic loop is for it or? Or, I mean, any, if you had any kind of uh, game in mind that you wanted to, to talk about. Power Grid is one that I played recently, and I got to thinking about it a bit as, as far as its feedback loops. It seems like it's got some really good examples there. So maybe, um, so maybe we could add that one to the discussion and what, what is like the core. What do you guys think of as the core mechanic there? And it seems like, or core loop. And it seems like to me it's got maybe multiple ones because of the different phases. Does that seem? Hmm. I think the the core loop in Power Grid is bidding, and I think the bidding drives everything else because it drives turn order, it drives how you build your network, it drives what resources you can get. So I so I think. And bidding is kind of a weird loop to try to define since it's you know multiple players doing it at the same time. Drew looks like he disagrees. I do, I do, and I'm really happy about it because okay. that means it's going to be interesting. All right, go ahead. Um, so I think the core loop in Power Grid is the economic loop, buying resources, using the resources to power cities to get money to buy resources. So to me, that seems like that's the repeatable, like personally, for the, for the for a single player, that's the repeatable chain of actions that they're doing. Sorry, I need to get some coal to to power the power plant that I have to supply these cities to receive this much money and then maybe I'll buy some other resources and the bidding you know influences how that loop's going to operate for me um and if I'm have extra money to you know spend on resources I have to divide my money between the resources and the operating of new power plants but that economic cycle to me seems like that's the core of that game okay so you're you're putting the bidding essentially at the back end of the loop instead of the front end yeah, like I'm choosing some way to spend the money, but I think the the loop incorporates buying stuff 
to do something with it to get more money. So bidding is definitely part of it, but also the resource market and making sure that I can buy the right resources to power the plants that I need. Like I think that that's as important to the feel of the game uh, as the bidding, even if the bidding is more mechanically important. Okay, I can buy that. I think... I think I, I was probably because it, it's ah yeah. Um, <laughs> Graham Russell is not here, so the pun the puns don't need to uh, to happen. Um, well, they do. <laughs> so okay, so I I guess I I think I was only uh, I think I was like zoomed in on the loop right, and, and I was mm. when I was looking at the the bidding part, and you you like zoomed out and looked at at more of the loop, and so yeah, I, I, okay, I, see. I, I buy I buy what you're saying. That it makes sense, yeah. Yeah, that's the part that was sort of confusing as I was thinking about it because you've got, you know, you're going through the round of bidding on the power plant, but then after that, you're going to go through and another loop as far like Drew was saying, where you're buying resources and you're basically buying cities so that you can make money off of them to feed back into the beginning. So I, I tend to fall on the side of it like Drew does, where I think that that economic piece is more of the sort of the core loop of, of power grid. So both of those things, it's weird because both of those things do integrate into that process, though, right? Like buying buying resources and buying power plants, both are just sort of both things that you can do to feed the entire engine. But like the repeatable chain of actions to me involves all of those, all of those steps more so than just the bit. Like I feel like I feel like the core loop needs to involve the outcome feeding back into the the next decision that I make. We're blurring the lines of all the different loop types we're talking about mm-hmm. already. But I feel like the core loop does need to contain that. So it needs to contain I made some I made took some action. The outcome of that action comes back to me and influences what the next action I'm gonna take is going to be. So you don't think you could have a core loop where each iteration of the loop is virtually independent of the previous? Oh boy. I think in a very simple game you might, but I don't think in a in a game with like a persistent state where i'm building up some resources or some you know i'm, I'm gaining momentum oh, we're doing it again that's gonna be um I know. <laughs> but yeah no, so i don't think in a game that has any sort of momentum to it that you can really have a core loop in a tabletop game that you could have a core loop that's completely independent of the previous iterations of it i if i think about like a video game there are a number of situations where i think the core loop in the in a video game might be relatively independent but that's mostly because it's real time and your progress is tracked some other way so like the core loop of a game like say like mario most of the stuff that i'm doing the repeatable sequence of actions is usually jumping on or into something and that's the very smallest repeatable thing that happens in that game and then my progress through a level there is how i'm tracking my completion of that game so my previous previous loop might not directly impact the next in such a concrete way as it does in something like power grid so it's harder to draw that connection but i do think that getting some message back from the game about the outcome of what you did is marks the end of the loop so you have to be able to get something back before you start again for the loop to be a loop because you have to have something to assess how what is going to be your next action that you take how much closer to yeah. my goal did i get so, even in love letter you have that i think oh definitely in love letter yeah and i think that's the subtleties that makes that game so good it's like you know what information did i learn from the previous loop and how am i going to incorporate that into this loop which is a different kind of loop we're going to talk about later what about something like animal upon animal so that's a that's a weird one because you're rolling uh most of the most of the decision making there is really limited i think in the original animal, animal upon animal. Yeah, in the original yeah. animal upon animal, you are rolling a dice, which is going to result in sort of a sub game thing where someone 
or you determines what animal is going to be placed by who on the structure. And you choose where to put it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that does influence, you know, based on what the, the structure now looks like. I have a message back from the game that's telling me what pieces are good or bad, and it might be different than it was before, right? So currently, the snake might be a really good piece to put on, but if someone adds a giraffe on there, now the snake is an awful piece. I can't put it down. So I think that does... I think animal upon animal qualifies. I think each each iteration of that game loop, roll dice, get a piece, put it on the table uh, or on the structure, does impact the next one. Okay, I'll buy that. Now I'm trying to think of, of something where you don't have a ton of influence. I haven't played it, but what about something like Munchkin? Oh, no, man. Munchkin has a lot of persistent state stuff. The core loop there, what, is probably... It's on my turn. We're just going to... We're going to do encounters. Each encounter is probably the core loop. So you flip out a card, play cards until your strength is higher than that. See if it stops. If it doesn't, play cards until your strength is higher than that again. In numerous ways, get your strength higher than the strength of the encounter. But the knowledge that all the players gain from observing that loop definitely carries through into the next one. Even as just a simple way as, you know, Burke spent all his cards. He doesn't have any now, so he probably can't even beat this really weak guy. Yeah, Munchkin's panned a lot as being simple, but there's a lot of stuff going on. Not, like, strategically, but systems-wise, there's enough stuff to look at between turns that your decision is going to change, or at least be impacted by what other players do, I think. Okay. So let's uh, back up a half step here. So talking about the core design loop, how is the core design loop used in game design? Burke, what do you think? I think, well, at least when I try to construct mine, it's it's... It's the skeleton to start hanging stuff on. It's the basic flow of the game. So it's important to try to keep that as, I think, as, as simple and direct as possible. Take as much... Um, you don't want it to be ambiguous at all, I don't think. So Yeah. When you say you don't want it to be ambiguous, you don't want what players are doing to be ambiguous? Like, you don't want them to not understand why they're doing something? Is that what you're saying? I guess what I'm saying is I, I don't want the loop itself to be confusing. I don't want them to have to, they shouldn't have to spend time, you know, they're trying to decipher how the flow of the game should go. So you want to make sure it's really solid and as, as simple as possible. Well, I keep using more simple, but streamlined, it, it just kind of... Elegant. Thank you. There you go. Elegant. <laughs> that was an elegant answer to that problem I was having. Thank you, Drew. That's the word that people often like throw out to describe some of that stuff and i think it's overused but in this case it's it's applicable the core loop of the game needs to be something that players can do and understand the outcome of and get better at i think are the three kind of key points in, in having a game loop so i need to be able to first completely understand what i'm doing second understand what happened because of what i did and third be able to do it better next time how soon do you need to understand the outcome of what you did this is a tangent you're gonna have to bear with me for a second this is just how I am, but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna loop out, get it, and then we're gonna come back. A guy from Epic Games uh, named Lowell Vaughn came by NCSU sometime last year and delivered a series of talks to the uh, game science researchers there. And one of the things that he talked about was the success of games like Call of Duty. And a lot of the people that design games, like Call of Duty, might be sort of the video game equivalent of Munchkin that it's kind of commonly really kind of trashed by a lot of people, but it's really successful. And it's really successful for a number of reasons. A couple of them that Lowell analyzed in his talk and kind of presented to us, an audience of mostly game designers who were kind of critical of that game to begin with. One of the things that it does extremely well is give you immediate feedback when you do something right, whenever you do something right. And a lot of people kind 
kind of make fun of that tendency of the game and talk about it as though it's like a scanner box or that kind of thing. And that kind of criticism is levied against it. But you see that happening in tabletop games now, too. I think point salad games are a good indicator of that same kind of tendency where I do something and the game says, yeah, that's that was good. Here, have three points. Right? Like, so that gets you towards a goal, have a small number of points, and then when you reach the goal, you get a big number of points. And maybe it turns out that at the end game, uh, the end of the scoring, all those small points that we collected over the course of the game kind of cancel each other out. And what really matters is whether we got the big goals. But that small, immediate piece of knowledge that the player's done something correct makes those games really compelling. It makes Call of Duty really compelling. So I think if you can give the player a little bit of feedback as often as possible, that's probably a good way of going about that. It doesn't necessarily need to be like if they're going to get their big goal right away, but letting them know that like, okay, you did something, it is progress towards one of those goals. It's actually something I've been working on a little bit with Access. I completely stole the player board idea from Hansa Teutonica and Eclipse and those sorts of things, but I think that's a really, inter- it's, it's interconnected with the game mechanics, but it's an effective way of communicating to the player they made progress towards something. You have essentially a progress bar on the interface in front of you and whenever you make one step towards that you take that off of there and even if that piece that i took off had no other mechanical relationship to anything doing that would be something that players would be compelled to do even if it's not scoring because it it's a progress bar it tells you you've made progress so you know the action you just took did something so what would you say the uh, core design loop is in access i think the core design loop of access is planning a route and executing that route. So it spans a couple turns, which I think is something that's kind of complicated and might be something I need to resolve in the design. But over a few turns, you lay down pieces that build up some sort of network. And then once that's completed, you execute your route and move your piece along that network, completing any number of sort of sub goals along that. At the end of executing that route, you get some feedback right away based on the goals that you completed that you get a couple of different kinds of feedback, which we'll get to in a second. But you get one that tells the player that they've done something effective. They've progressed towards a certain goal, uh, either scoring some points or moving a piece off of the player board or different things like that. And you also get some mechanical feedback in that some of your actions became stronger because you did them properly, which is another thing that Call of Duty kind of does well. And a lot of video games have worked into them is this idea of sort of... uh, a lot of video game designers will call it RPG mechanics, but they're just sort of forced progression mechanics where, you know, my character has 12 strength. If I hit stuff a lot, now he has 14 strength. Maybe I didn't get better at hitting stuff, but my character got better at hitting stuff. So I still get that sense of progression, even if the player didn't really improve. They kind of feel like they improved and their action is more effective. And it gets kind of the same, I think, response from players and, I don't know, has the same sort of impact on on executing that loop. When I get to the end of it, if I'm mechanically stronger or I get some feedback that what I did was good, I've learned something about the game and I can, on my next iteration of that loop, do it better. Hmm. And I think that leads into one of the things we were going to talk about is how do you keep the loop from getting boring? What Drew just said, that... <laughs> that oh. No, that's actually, yeah, that that's where... I think it's a good place to go next. So, so one of the... Uh, we haven't talked about Splendor... Which which I do not enjoy. Um, I know many Boo. many people do, and that's fine. It's it, cookies. It's what? It's cookies. It's Splendor's cookies. Explain. It's 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 just that core loop and just the reward at the end of it. It's like a snack. Like you do the thing, you pick up the chips, spend them to get something. Now you have it, right? Now I have a new thing. I'm both mechanically more powerful, right? Like I am. I have permanent red chips or blue chips or whatever. And I got feedback that I accomplished a goal because now I have that in front of me. And it's just that. There's nothing else. Do the loop, get both the mechanical and 
you might have the you have like an interim turn too, so you may yeah. not necessarily gain a card, but you're getting currency towards getting a card, and it's not that far off. Yeah. Usually. So the loop could span a couple of your turns, right? You're it, building up, buying something, building up. I think that's the loop in Splendor, right? Is collecting resources to buy something, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. I keep getting falling back into thinking about it in terms of an actual. It's probably my it's probably my programming background when I'm thinking loop. I'm thinking oh, that like, makes it so hard. Yes, so don't go there, <laughs> anybody else. But <laughs> I think that's where cause I got to think I've about it in terms of 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 like you say. I mean, it, it's it could be multiple actual turns, but the idea is is that you're actually getting that reward so that you. It feeds feeds back into what you're going to try to target next. All right, so so back to how do you keep the core loop from getting boring? So I brought up Splendor because one of the things I dislike about that game is I just find it boring. I find that core loop like I think it's like interesting. I don't know, like the first couple you know turns in the game, like maybe the first five turns or so, but after that, I it just for me it. it there, there isn't. I, I guess there isn't enough of a sense of progression in that game where the loop doesn't. It doesn't ever become more interesting for me, even if you've got like cards in front of you that are now giving you permanent resources. Obviously, I'm an outlier because the game is very well thought of. But yeah, so to me, that's an example of like a loop that just gets. It's just really boring. Just the same thing. Just you know, kind of happens over and over again. What about something like? I don't know, Dominion. What keeps, like, Dominion has a very defined loop. And Dominion is a very well thought of game. What keeps that loop from just getting boring? I don't know. What do you guys think? What are we defining as the core loop before I go into uh, getting it too narrow here? So it's just to play one round. And when you're acquiring cards, you go through that as a player? So I'd say the loop would be draw cards, then do actions, and then buy cards. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I, I think that's – there might be maybe a little tiny bit more, but I think that's pretty much it. That's pretty much the core loop for Dominion. And so I think that what keeps that interest, interesting, at least from my standpoint, is what you're able to – as you're able to evolve what you're able to do during that loop based upon what you buy. So you're getting those – you're adding those cards back into your deck or you're removing cards from your deck to make it more efficient or to strengthen your or reinforce the strategy you're trying to take. So that makes it an interesting puzzle. It keeps keeps it from getting dull to me. Uh, okay, I see. So when you're looking at it from like the loop perspective, the action is like a general category and what you're specifically going to be doing for that action is going to potentially change each turn depending on what card you're going to play. Right. Yeah. yeah. In in the early game, it's going to be very similar because you know you don't have a lot of different cards. But as the game goes on, you'll uh, most likely have some different options to to play. Okay. Yeah. And then the buy part, I guess, probably doesn't change too much because it's always the same. What is it? Ten cards out there? Is that what it is? Yeah. You know, they'll get depleted, of course. But the the buy part probably does not change nearly as much. Well, I guess it would change in the sense that you would be able to buy more expensive things. As the uh, the game goes on, but it's yeah yeah okay. Well, and, and maybe that's another aspect of it is as as you get more currency, uh, more resources in which to buy cards, your options open up too as to what you can add to your deck. I think the thing that Dominion has over Splendor on the sort of arena because you know the core game loop of both of those games is pretty similar. We're going to collect resources in some way, 
You're going yeah. to buy some stuff that's going to provide you more resources later, and you're just going to kind of keep doing that. Is that Dominion has kind of a couple of pivot points where the type of decision that you're going to make about what thing to buy is going to be really different, like very different. Not only that cards got more expensive, but at some point you want to buy victory uh, point cards yeah. instead of buying action you know, cards, action cards, yeah. or you might want to at some point switch and actually get things out of your deck. So you have a couple of different directions you might want to go and different points in the game where you're going to change what kind of goals you're looking at. And Splendor, you're mostly just looking at bigger goals all the time, right? So I buy the card I can afford, and then the next card I can afford is better than that, and the next card I can afford is better than that. And eventually the game is over because I bought the biggest. Like, I bought a lot of really big things, right? So it just kind of points directly upward, and doesn't really change that often. Whereas Dominion has a couple of those points where you're going to make a drastically different kind of decision based on where you are in the where you are in the grander game. Yeah. Okay. So it yeah. sounds like in the in the loop in whatever the category uh, for the part of the loop you're in, maybe a way to generalize it would be if the thing that you're doing for that category is always the same or very similar thing maybe that's where it becomes just you know too rote too predictable but if if whatever that category is like you know play a card you could that could be a very wide range of options depending on you know the the game maybe that's what keeps that loop from just becoming something very boring and repetitious it could be i think it's maybe a little bit uh so that's definitely part of it like what different types of decisions can i make how different can the action that I'm taking in the core loop be and how different can its effect on the state be. But it's just as much, I think, what the state tells me about what my next decision should be. And so I think in Splendor, you have a couple of things that are going to make my decision very different. I think the biggest thing that can make my decision very different is if other players have, like, there's a scarcity. So a lot of players have hoarded one color of chip or there's not very many cards on the board that require that color, something like that, that could kind of change what I'm going to buy, but it's going to change it to buy something different. Whereas in Dominion, the effect that people's actions are having on the board might change my decision rather drastically. Not that it's a highly interactive game, but that my decision might be, instead of buying a money card, which has a specific kind of impact, buying a victory point card, which has a really different kind of impact. And I think most of the cards in Splendor have kind of the same impact. I get a, a permanent resource and, you know, none or some points, but there's not like a divergence there, really. So the type of impact I can have on the game and how the board tells me what impact I should be striving to have on the game is a lot more straightforward in a game like Splendor than it is in Dominion. Can either of you think of an example of a game where you felt like the, the core loop was just kind of like just too repetitious and it was, and it became boring for you to play. So I wouldn't play a game like that that often. I'd be unlikely to remember it. Right. I could so so Splendor isn't my favorite game. I don't think it's incredibly boring, but I do think that it can be too long for the depth of game that it is. And uh other kind of similar games in that vein uh, like the builders, I think is kind of a similar game where like, I like the thing, I like the thing that I'm doing in that game, but I don't want to do it as many times. And with as little variance in what I'm going towards as that game wants me to do. And it's not like a very, it's not like a super long game, but it, if it were, 
you know, 15 to 20 minutes, I'd be happier than if it were the length that it ends up being. I think that's a great example. I think the builders is like, it's, it's one of those games where it's, it's like the idea is clever, but, but it feels like there's not enough progression. Like all you're doing really is, you know, getting a a little bit more resources with your workers and you're getting a little bit more points, but it's just, yeah, I, I think that's a, uh, I think that's a really good example of what I would consider to be a very boring core loop. I think it's only boring because of the length of the game. So I think if the game were shorter, like the the basic idea of that is satisfying, but because it doesn't change. So basic idea of I have some workers, I'm setting them up in a set that's going to efficiently fulfill some requirement for a building, and I get the building, and the building pays me money, and I use the money to buy workers and you know you have that little cycle and that's pretty satisfying to do but it doesn't really go anywhere other than like kind of similar to what i was saying with splendor it only kind of goes up i have more workers and i can get a better building there's a couple of weird little things in the game right like this is the older version of the builders i haven't played the new one which adds supposedly some stuff i have no idea but the uh, old version has like some buildings that turn into workers when you buy them and those are interesting and that kind of makes you value something differently than just upward, more powerful, but it's not enough to like sustain it for so long. And it's not, like like I said, it's not a, a really long game, but I think that the boredom kind of sets in once there's a realization that, okay, this decision isn't really going to change at this point. You know, I have enough gold and enough workers that I can do any of the things that are there, and all of the options that I have available to me get me more of those resources which I don't really need any more of because I have enough. And there's nowhere else for me to direct it, right? Right, right. And I, I think it's interesting, like, I, I don't think, like, quote-unquote fixing that game would be to make it, like, the point threshold lower. So I think what would happen if the point threshold was lower, it would actually be potentially more unsatisfying because then it would be down to card flips. You know, like, you were able to get the worker that it enabled you to complete the building that gave you more points faster. So it feels like the the points that are needed, or I can't remember what the point threshold is. It's like 18 or 17 or something like that. Or, or it might yeah. it might change depending on the, uh, the number of players. Yeah, I think if you lower that, it would actually become a less uh, satisfying game. Uh, maybe. I think in that particular game's case, like I said, the problem that I feel happens is that you have enough stuff at some point and getting more stuff doesn't feel particularly compelling and now it's just how like then you look at the board state and think about how what's the route to getting the point limit now with the stuff that you have since you don't need anything else so so that pivot point isn't interesting it's not a, a strong pivot point right it doesn't really change the kinds of things that you're doing you just have looked at the state and realized that, okay i no longer need to ima- I, like some of those things don't matter to me anymore, and my decisions aren't really going to change very much from this point forward. I think Splendor tries to talk about that a little bit with the way that the uh, those tiles, the nobles tiles, mm-hmm. those kind of provide some incentive to look at some different things at some point. I think something like that, like so, instead of fixing the builders by just chopping off the end of it, making it so that there's a decision to make at the end other than I'm just building things that are worth more money until I want to build things that are worth more money than that. I think money and points are largely correlated in that game, so there's just not anything to work towards after a certain point, but the game keeps going. So it's not, the, yeah, so I guess that's what I meant by too long. It's necessarily the, the, the specific time, but it has you working on one thing for longer than it's interesting to be doing that. Or for a more 
maybe continuous duration of time, then it's interesting to be doing that. And the game could be more interesting if I did that for an amount of time and then switched to doing something else for a second. I had some pivot points maybe repeatedly, but yeah, just long beyond the point where that's interesting to be doing. Hmm, okay. We haven't talked about this before, but at least not on the podcast, we've talked about it in person. But to me, this sounds like if the core loop is not, uh, I guess I would say evolving, that's almost like your game does not have a ludological arc. Ludological? L- yes. Or, na- or narrative. Uh, some people also use narrative as the term. Oh, boy. Yeah. If you want to fight about words, there's another one that we could... <laughs> anyway. <laughs> we, we don't need to fight on this Yeah, we'll just leave that alone. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I agree. That's... It's definitely the implication there. So how, how do you avoid that in a, uh, in a loop? When you're designing your core loop for, for a game, how, how do you keep it from getting boring? How do you, how do you keep players you know, invested? So the first thing that I would suggest, and this is something I think I talked about maybe on one of the previous podcasts, is that the action itself, like the the thing that they're doing in the core loop, should be fun on its own. A game can be fine if the thing that you're doing in the core loop is not very fun, but the outcomes are fun. That a game can be good, but it's more likely to be good if the core loop, the core action that you're doing, is fun on its own. I think that even... So I'm going to bring up Trajan again. I like that game a lot. That's because it's good. Yeah, I think that just manipulating the Mancala, like if the game was just manipulate your Mancala so that you get the right color pieces into the dishes, that would be a fun game. It wouldn't be as good as Trajan, because Trajan's really good. But it would be fun, like that's a fun and satisfying thing to do. Picked up these, I got them over there, I got that to match, that's successful, and I pull this thing off of there. Uh, I think that's fine. I don't think that the core thing, just buying stuff in, in builders, is fun on its own. I think there's a bit of satisfaction in getting stronger. Like, I got more money, and now I can buy bigger stuff. But buying stuff by itself, like, that's not as fun as manipulating something. So that's the simplest thing, I guess I could say. So if by building stuff, you know, it was increasing your ability to add more stuff potentially or if yeah. the way that i built stuff was something that was satisfying to do so i'm all of my answers on this part are going to be a little bit biased because i think different players enjoy different kinds of things find different kinds of things satisfying but a game where i am building stuff but there's a sequence to it like i can have done it well i bought a building and because i bought that building second something cool has happened and i know that that was good to have done and i learned that i should do things like that right manipulating the mancala if i you know, move all the pieces out from some area and I can't take a form action next turn. I know that I did that poorly. Next time I can do that better. Right? So I can, I think going back to some of the things I was talking about previously, but feeling like I can have done something well and can then do it better later is just super important to that core thing being fun. Like Glenn Moore. Glenn Moore is a really, really good game where you're just buying stuff, right? You're mostly just like, I'm, I want this tile. I'm going to get it. If those tiles didn't interact with each other in any way, like, it was just, I got that one, and it's some points, and then I got this one, and it's some points. That wouldn't be as good. But because there's a couple of different ways that I can do that better, right? Like, placing this tile here lets me do something cool later. Or play, buying this tile instead of that tile might let me get multiple turns soon. Like, I can have that little piece of feedback and know that I've done it well. I think it makes it stronger as a core loop. I think what you're describing is dynamic valuation of those tiles. Like they're not static. Well, in that case, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're they're not static in terms of like how good they're going to be for even relative 
to how good it would be for you versus you know the the next player in turn order and so you're trying to dynamically evaluate how uh, you know the relative values of all those tiles and which one you should jump to in addition to also your turn order and also in that game the number of tiles that you have because if you have more you're going to lose points uh, yeah, and, yeah. Uh, uh, which is also a very interesting uh, little tweak uh, to that game so so yeah that I, I wonder if like going back to the builders if there just isn't enough dynamic elements in how you get to build the stuff if that's the thing that's making that loop just boring to, to do you know, if there was some way to make that more dynamic, and I don't know what it would be, you know, maybe that would be the you know the quote unquote fix for that game. You know, not reducing points, not reducing duration, or, or trying to make that that decision just more dynamic and therefore more interesting. So that's a core design loop. Anything else we want to mention at the moment about core design loop before we move on to the next type of loop? No, I guess the only thing is the sort of sum up that we did about the builders like i think dynamic valuation is a big part of it but being able to understand the impact of your decision and do it differently and better is also a big part of it because in that game like most of your decision is math and at some point you're not going to get better right <laughs> like you're not going to get better at saying okay i have this much money and that's what i can get for that amount yeah it's not a heuristic tree it's a heuristic bush yeah. So, you know, the first few turns, and that that's, I think, tying into the idea of something having both mechanical and, oh, we're going to segue, uh, tying into both mechanical and psychological feedback. The game has mechanical feedback. Maybe psychological is not the right word, but play, player feedback and system feedback. Experiential. Yeah, experiential feedback. Yeah. Let's do that one. That's really good. <laughs> um, the game has mechanical feedback. I get more money. And I get more workers, and that's a feedback system. Like it's getting, I'm getting stronger the entire time, and that's satisfying. But it doesn't have very much experiential feedback in that I can't really get better at doing that action. And the game doesn't, like, you know, at, after that point, the game's not going to tell me anything different about what I did. I don't learn that I bought the wrong card, really. Yeah, I don't know. Like that's, I, I don't get better at, at buying things. And I can't be taught to be better at buying things, really. But I mean, so. I, I think there's like there's probably like a half step step up, right? Like you can learn like the deck, and you can learn yeah. how to be more efficient given the deck. Sure, but but the, that's but that's about it. You kind of bump into a ceiling. It would take a lot of effort to get beyond. Right. I guess like yeah, if you knew the the if you had a memorization, I guess of the perfect contents of that deck, you could know that a card was better in this circumstance than another card because you know that there's only one of that in the deck and it's already gone or something like and those kinds of things are good people like being able to do that not when it's like such a gigantic step up from what you're doing from on a turn-to-turn basis i guess so the next type of loop we're going to talk about is and we've been dancing around this one uh this is the feedback loop so burke you want to give a shot at a definition for the feedback loop yeah so feedback loop is basically it's where you have the results of whatever core loop or whatever you're going through. It feed it comes back in as sort of an input into like your next instance in the loop. So they in whatever form that is, whether it's you know you're getting better at something or maybe you're getting worse at something. But whatever you did in the last time through informs or builds on what comes builds up to what comes next. 
Yeah, I can I can work with that. Drew, any any other anything you want to add or any other definition? No, that sounds pretty much like what I would I would describe for that. The classic example of a feedback loop is a is a thermostat, right? So if you set your thermostat at a certain temperature, when the temperature either goes above or below, the thermostat kicks back in to either raise or lower the temperature depending on exactly what happens. And so that that's a really easy kind of feedback loop that people can understand because I think almost everyone has, you know, worked with a, a thermostat at some point in their lives. So you'll, you'll also hear the terms positive feedback loop and negative feedback loop. Oh boy. Yeah, which we're going to talk about, well, right now actually. Yeah, there's a big issue with that, right? Because positive, when you're thinking about it, tends to imply good good things. That's good. And negative feedback is uh, is bad. But actually most of the feedback loops in game design that people kind of think about are more like the thermostat that you suggested. They're trying to like regulate the system and make sure something doesn't get really out of hand. And that's a negative feedback loop every time. If someone's too far behind catching them up to average, that's a negative feedback loop. If someone's too far ahead, bringing them back down to average is a negative feedback loop. So that's a weird terminology hurdle. So what do you think about reinforcing and balancing instead of positive and negative is that any better or is that just worse in a different way i think that gets gets at it a little bit better uh, certainly yeah yeah i like that description better than than positive and negative yeah we'll, we'll go with that further all right for the remainder of this <laughs> once again the classic example of like a reinforcing feedback loop is a runaway leader so if you have oh i don't know a race game or something and someone gets way out ahead and there's just no way to catch that person because i don't know they don't have like you can't hit them with with uh, any weapons or they've gotten past like the really nasty part of the race and now they're in the home stretch and you know it's a straightaway and they can just floor it and they're gonna they're just gonna win you can tell like that's a reinforcing uh, feedback loop i don't know someone think of a, a good balancing feedback loop in a game go ahead drew this is one of your favorite ones right oh I'll let you have that one, but isn't that uh didn't you just described a runaway leader? Oh, that's a not reinforcing. Not the thing that runaway leader. No. Okay, go ahead, Burke. I'm sorry. Will you say that? Say that again. What was the? I thought the thing we were talking about for a reinforcing feedback loop was a solution to a runaway leader problem, not the runaway leader problem itself. Yeah, reinforcing is, is uh, equals positive, and a positive yeah. positive feedback loop is usually a runaway leader problem. Oh, yeah. for sure. Yeah, um, sort of. Amp- it amplifies the differences between the players in a positive loop. Right. It so, just it just keeps reinforcing their position to a greater and greater degree. And yeah. It, and if it's too strong, it leads to the runaway leader, or you know, the other players can't can't increase enough to catch up. Right. So you had an example of a balancing feedback loop, Burke. We'll see if it if it is. But I mean, I, one one of the examples that I hear that's come up in conversations we've talked about quote unquote rubber banding, which I guess is also sort of a um, a balancing loop or feedback, is the um, what is it the blue shell in um, Mario Kart? Yeah, that's one thing that can happen. That's maybe not the best one because it feels really bad if you're in the lead and you get hit by it. But I think another aspect in Mario Kart is that as a player gets further out in front, their rewards become less and less good as compared to people who are further in the pack, at least the way I understand it. Yep. Yeah, they definitely distribute the more powerful sort of weapons and resources to players that are losing. Players that are currently winning are more likely to get 
either really simple items that are kind of hard to use very well, green shell, which doesn't track, so it's harder to hit people with, or just money, just coins, which can't harm other players, but make you go faster. But if you're in, there's actually a second one. If you're in the lead in that game, uh, at least in the more recent versions, you get coins to go faster, but there's a cap on how many coins you can have. So you can only have 10 coins. You can't go any faster than that, but you can get hit and lose them, whereas people in the back are going to be getting them uh, and benefiting. You guys, uh, have you both played Suburbia? Yeah. The red lines on the score track on Suburbia, is that a balancing feedback loop? Yeah. You think it is? I think that's a piece of a balancing feedback loop, definitely. A similar one, like Lords of Vegas also has something kind of like that, where you can't go up the score track unless you're earning a certain number of points at a time. So I have a setup where I'm earning a bunch of points early on from these one and two point casinos. I'm going to eventually hit this point where I have to build something bigger or I can't progress. So I think that's, yeah, that's definitely a piece of a, a balancing feedback loop. So we were talking about Power Grid earlier. What's the balancing feedback loop in Power Grid? In my experience, uh, having played it one time, <laughs> is uh, when you're in the lead, you're going to have the you're going to end up paying more. Usually, like you're the person who's going to get to pick what you bid on first, but you have all the other players who are going to be able to get in your way or bid against you. So if they're trying to work against you, then they're going to try to drive up the prices. So you're going to pay more. Also, when it comes to buying resources and picking cities that you're going to move into, you're going to get the leftover choices, which usually means, like in the resource case, the more expensive resources, that's because other people have bought the cheaper ones. Or, and then, of course, with the cities, people may get in your way and force you to have to go around or go into a different route, which will cost you more money. So that all has the effect of dampening the amount of money you have on hand to continue to build on your lead. So strictly turn order. That's the uh, balancing feedback loop? Coupled I, with the bidding, right? Yes. And, the, and the stock market. So the net result of the turn order is everything's more expensive for you. Yeah. Are there uh, any designs you can think of that like, had either a, a, a balancing feedback loop that was too strong or like implemented in a way that caused the game to kind of get into like a stasis state? I haven't run into one that fell into a like a mechanical stasis or... Or even as Drew was uh, talking about, I guess before we started, I think it was before we started recording, where the games, where the players might put themselves in the stasis state. I don't, can't think of one that I've played that's done that. Drew? Yeah, so have- what I was talking about before, the, the, um, before we started recording, I was talking about maybe different kinds of things in games that could be considered loops and brought up the idea of a stalemate or a co-fight in Go essentially a state that players end up returning to over and over because it's really important. So whoever's currently disadvantaged in that state tries to make some other part of the board as important as that area so they can gain advantage in that state. And then the other player essentially does kind of the same thing. So it's a cycle, like there's some cyclical element to it, but uh, that's really kind of the only strong example of that I can think of. Something that I want to talk about, I don't know if we to this or not but whether or not a when is a reinforcing feedback loop good because the example you gave was a problem and i don't think it's always a problem that's true yeah so uh, so go ahead so we talked actually a lot about reinforcing feedback loops being really satisfying the first part of the podcast right (laughs) And and they are right like any engine building game is a reinforcing feedback loop you start with a little bit of money and a little bit of stuff lets you get more stuff that gives you more money and you ramp up pretty consistently so that's definitely a reinforcing feedback loop and some games that don't have a strong enough reinforcing feedback loop can 
have a really bad problem that's similar where the winner is decided before the game's over. So if someone's far enough ahead that they're definitely going to win. So it's actually, you know, two ways of approaching the, uh, the runaway leader problem. So is it a problem that the game shouldn't be over yet and the other people should have a chance to catch up? Or should the game have been over because this person is so far ahead? Right. Like Monopoly is actually a great example of one that has that problem. So it's all about that, that reinforcement loop. But it's not powerful enough to get other players to lose when they should have lost. And so the game continues. Right. Yeah. And it gets to that like slow death you know, state. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe that is that stasis that you were talking about a second ago. I think that's a pretty decent situation. You get to the point where the player that's winning has a bunch of resources and you basically wait for somebody to encounter death, but it might not happen for a good deal of turns. Right. I think that's something that actually can happen in engine builders, uh, since you mentioned engine builders. For so, sure. Yeah. Something like, like San Juan or uh, St. Petersburg, which are excellent, excellent games. But you can get into a state in both of those where it's very very clear someone is going to win you know they're so far ahead and there's no way to rein them back in so i'm not sure whether that is actually a game problem or whether it's just a i guess i would say a, a side effect of that style of game where it just can happen sometimes and and you just have to you know kind of deal with it yeah I, mean, I i see it in the bloody inn which is uh, kind of the newest engine builder. It seems like... Well, I've only played it three times, so I, I perhaps I just haven't played it enough. But it seems like whoever can first get one of the level three dudes who can kill him and bury him and get all the money and turn that money into checks first, it seems like they're going to win. And that happens in like the first half of the game. I have yet to see anyone be able to come back from that. It's it's definitely worth uh, trying out. I, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, you should anyone should avoid it. I mean, I play St. Petersburg and it has, like, I really like that game, but it definitely has the exact problem that you were talking about. So. Yeah. So do you, do you think that, is it a game problem for like engine building games or or is it just simply you know an artifact of the type of design and you just kind of say well okay that was a rough game you know let's let's go again that's yeah that's really tough to say because like in saint petersburg i mean there's player skill involved if you played it before and you know how important the nobles are you know to that in-game scoring and you're not checked in that way, and you get way ahead in that. That's bad for the other players. It's kind of hard to get back from that. But I, then I also wonder, because if I remember right, with St. Petersburg, it's played out over a certain number of turns, which is dependent on the decks, right? So it depends on the cards that are being bought. But maybe that's part of it. It's, it's, it's got this, instead of playing to a point to where, you know, like a point total, to where the game would just end and that person crossed that threshold and won, it can get into this state where this person is ahead but we haven't, we, you know, we're going to continue to go when maybe it should end. So I wonder if it's, you know, games that are like that, that have a set number of turns where the play, play can get out of balance and, you know, you just have to play it till you reach that final turn. That's definitely a piece of it. I think, Matt, you said something about it being a consequence of the type of design. Yeah, engine builder. Yeah. So I think St. Petersburg actually has a couple of these things, but I think it's a almost unavoidable consequence of a couple of design decisions that that's going to happen in some of your games. And the first of them is essentially being an economic engine builder where I have a resource that lets me get cards that make that resource better. So if that's the situation, so I, you know, I have $3, I buy a card that gives me $5, I buy a card that gives me $12. 
right? So every time I have more money, I can buy a card that gives me even more money at an escalating rate. Those numbers are silly for St. Petersburg, but um, <laughs> but that's that's the idea. And then the scoring on the nobles is a similar a similar way. If I'm able to buy a noble, I get some points, which means the next noble that I buy is more points, right? So you have right. that triangular scoring going on there. And like combination of those elements means that even if if I was trying to compete with you for nobles, which is a big source of points in that game, and you have more than me, I can't catch up. Your slope of your line is higher than mine, and I can't get you. And similarly, if I have less money than you, you can buy the better building than me, and so I can't buy that building, and so I can't catch up to you in money. So there's these kinds of like design elements that are really satisfying for one player doing for each player doing them actually they're pretty satisfying but they can result in these kinds of bad situations i wonder if that's why they added the uh, the market to the reprint i i feel like that's a definite part of it i think people complained pretty commonly that they also changed a lot of point values on some of the buildings as well just to make it so that there's if i can't compete with you in this arena because your slope is already higher than mine i can go to some other arena and maybe try to make up the difference there but where you're not as strong, and I can you know get more points more rapidly than you. But in that game, all of it relies on money, so the the underlying money piece is still going to have a pretty strong effect. If someone gets a lot of money generation going on early, they're going to have a good lead. Like that's going to be hard to overcome. Right, and that's usually my pitfall in that game is I always get behind on money. <laughs> yeah, all that interesting stuff. And you play with Adam Skelding, and that's your other pitfall. <laughs> that- that that is too true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, is there something specific that you can do in an engine builder to try to you know mitigate that through a balancing feedback loop, or is there just is you know or like I said, is that just you know a uh, unintentional feature of uh, of that style of of game? Yeah, bo- both. Okay. <laughs> so it is, I think, an unintentional. So it's it's not an unintentional feature. It's a, it's designed because getting that is satisfying, right? So it's absolutely super great feeling to get $3, buy the thing that gives me 5 buy the thing that gives me 12 Like, that's nice. You like it. You feel like you got more powerful. RPG mechanics in every video game since 2001 are that way. You know, you have two strength, let you kill the guy that levels you up faster, gets you more XP, gets you more strength, and just do this repetitive thing. Like, uh, that's, that's the loop of those games. But games that so I think that St. Petersburg does this in a couple ways. The the addition of the fruit market is one of them. But games that have you pivot to where your engine doesn't get you anything more. Like you need to, at some point, either take apart your engine or start buying stuff that doesn't ramp you, right? Doesn't ramp up your productivity anymore. Kind of overcome that. And that's sort of a negative feedback or balancing feedback loop. And I don't know, Dominion's super good and does that, right? You have to, no matter how much money you're able to buy, at some point you need to part, start putting garbage provinces into your deck and they are going to affect you exactly as negatively well not exactly but just about as negatively as they're going to affect anybody else in fact it might even be worse for you since all of your cards are three gold uh three money having one of them replaced with the province loses you three money whereas if i don't have that many having one of them gone only loses me two money so maybe it's a little bit of a, a rubber banding mechanism in a couple of ways. I'm trying to think of other examples, Burke. You have any other examples of like engine building games where at some point you have to direct yourself towards something other than making your engine better? I am not coming up with any off the top of my head. Although I had a funny thought about St. Petersburg. If they introduce a revolution mechanic where having too many <laughs> workers uh, would overthrow the nobles. Uh, 
<laughs> so you have to balance those two aspects of the game. If you get the uh, Zarin Carpenter, you can start a new regime and all the nobles get... <laughs> yes. There, there you go. Uh, design the uh, new expansion for it. There we go. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of like an engine-building game that has that pivot point, and I, I'm having trouble thinking of anything. I think it's one of the things that makes that game kind of exceptional among other similar games is it does have this really defined pivot point. Right. The other thing that you can do, I think, is be innovation and just blow everybody up at some point, which actually works relatively well because the fun part of engine building is building the engine. And once you've got it, you know, you either win or don't. And that game makes you do more engine building a couple of different times. It's because you're interacting and tearing people's stuff apart. So you basically don't stop doing that. Okay, so that reminds me, the Manhattan Project. That's not a uh, necessarily an engine, well, sort of, it's sort of an engine builder. Where, yeah, sure it is. Yeah, where you're buying the buildings and putting them in your uh, on your player board. And, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like, you're getting more ability to produce stuff that's... That, counts yeah so you can have direct interaction with other players by bombing you know their uh, their buildings and and damaging and that is i think a little bit I, there's no pivot point in that game i don't think but you, i think you do have a way to try to rein in someone who looks like they are just you know running away with a with a better engine so you can also straight up fill their buildings with spies right just yeah put spies all up in all their stuff that they thought was good for them that's true. Yeah, yeah. You can also yeah just clog up their engine. Yeah, so. I've got to play this game to make sure you guys aren't lying about this. This sounds awesome. Yeah. Oh, it's neat. Manhattan Project is excellent. Okay, so we talked about actually the Manhattan Project before we started recording, but I think that's a really interesting design in that it has multiple loops going on at the same time in a way that not a lot of games I think necessarily have, where you've got the core design loop, which is sort of i hate to say standard but it is it's the standard worker placement loop for the most part right yeah yeah you play place a worker get something repeat yeah that's it just i don't know it, it feels slightly different but but you're right it, it is pretty much a, a standard worker placement but then each player has sort of their own loop because at some point they have to recall all their workers there's no rounds like there are in a lot of worker placement games where you know at the end of the round you get all your your dudes back and so it's really interesting how those loops are going to sort of interact with each other with players' individual loops. And uh, before we move into that style of loop, is there anything else we want to talk about for feedback loops? We can just throw this away if it goes nowhere. Okay. Um, so a really popular video game, League of Legends, has a really strong reinforcing feedback loop in it. I and mean, a lot of role-playing games do, competitive types of things. And in that game, it's extremely important to the game working because the game needs to close out at some point. It needs to just end, and it basically involves both people ramping up their characters, all their characters becoming more and more powerful until one team completely overtakes the other team and is able to just win in a really important fight and win the game. And at the same time, as the game goes on, the the penalty for dying gets stricter and stricter. So basically constantly increasing the stakes and increasing the power of characters until that snowball effect happens and someone's able to just kind of win. If that game had a rubber banding mechanism, it would never end and it would not be good at all. Right? So are there examples of 
like I kind of talked about Monopoly a little bit, but Monopoly is not a hobby game. You know, a lot of the stuff that it does isn't uh, good. So are there any games that you can think of in tabletop that have that kind of thing going on where there's just a snowball effect that's required to make the game kind of close out effectively and interestingly, right? So in League of Legends, it's important because it's also dramatic. The game builds to a climactic fight where basically whoever's snowballed ahead is able to, to win that fight and win the game. It builds to that and is interesting for that reason. If there was more of a snowball or more of a rubber banding effect going on, basically there would be no incentive to fight or get any objective after that point because dying is such a high penalty. Hmm. I feel like there's some kind of card game that would be similar. Like, I almost want to say poker, but not... It's not exact like that. Like, you can get someone, you know, leading in money and leading in money and then they just bully people out, you know? Mm. And and that's that's a way... Like, you don't necessarily need that to end the game. You can end a table that way, right? Right, right. We're now done playing poker because yeah. we're all broke. Yes, yeah. <laughs> or or someone's just, they look over and that person has five times as much money as I do. So, you know what? I'm done. And, yes, yeah, good game. You, you, you won. So, I don't know. I think that's, like, sort of similar, but it's not exact of what you're uh, describing. That's actually, yeah, it's pretty, pretty related i can't think of a board game off the top of my but head, in general though. you don't like play poker you play poker until you're done right and yeah. that is needed to make you have a does like an understandable goal right right i have all the money and right. no one else wants to give me any more of their money so we're done playing poker <laughs> right <laughs> but it seems like like an older game like risk has that idea for at the end you're trying to eliminate other people well, in the newer versions they added victory points but to keep the game length from going so long yeah i think i think adding the victory points to a game like that it definitely changes the feel people generally are pretty positive about that change i think one of the weird things about risk was that it actually didn't let you bring your full force to bear on people right like i have a million more guys than you our combat is still i roll three dice to your two dice no matter what yeah that that's true yeah. So, I mean, even though it, uh, so it puts a dampener on itself in that sense, right? Like, I'm definitely yeah. going to win if I have that many people, I have that many territories. I'm basically going to win. It's just, I might not win this fight because the game has decided I don't get to. Right. Dice happened and I don't have it. But, you know, I'm going to get more troops again and I'm faster than you. And so I should just be able to do that again until it works. It might be better if they just let you clobber that, like, I have five times as many guys as you. You lose. Yeah. See if you kill any of my guys on the way in here. Yeah, so if you were rolling like five dice to, to two or something, as, as you increase your dice pool, you should increase your you know like ability to roll a six. Maybe just yeah, more dice would make that snowball faster. Which, in, in some of those cases, isn't unwanted, right? Right. I think that's one of those where we were talking about where it's pretty clear that that person is probably going to win mm-hmm. um, in all likelihood, but they might not do it for a while because there's a dampener on them, and maybe it shouldn't be there in that case. Or, like in some exceptional case, right? Once I have some uh, number of troops, that dampener is kind of pulled off so that the game can end reliably. Innovation, actually, kind of sometimes feels that way. Oh, because you can get... The um, how many do you need? Six achievements? Is that what it is? Yeah, and sometimes you can do that in in like an un- unexpected way. Uh, not necessarily that you can do it in an unexpected way, but sometimes uh, you know, typically your stuff gets blown apart a couple of times throughout the game. But every once in a while, you get something that's just so good. Like, oh, this effect, I'm going to take uh, take and mill the ridiculous card, and now I'm going to do that, and you just like push really hard for the end with with that that uh, you've uh, achieved, right? Yeah. 
So, like, once you've reached some sort of tipping point, it's just like, okay, now I can win, and I just win now. Whereas previously it's a race, at that point, once you've reached that, it's now, okay, This now the game will definitely end because of this. Okay, yeah, you, you get the, what do they call the uh, the levels of the cards? The ages? Ages, yeah. So you, you have so many high-level ages, much higher than the other players, and so you're going to be able to achieve faster than they're going to be able to, and you're just going to... Yeah, most likely be able to to snowball to a very quick victory at the end there. Yeah, I can see yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, other than that, it feels like you would have to have some type of game where you have player elimination, and when you have player elimination, like, you take all their stuff, you know? And so now I'm, like, uber-powerful. Mm. And which, yeah, I can't really think of a board game that does something like that off the top of my head. Yeah, I think tabletop design is pretty well focused on, like, this is, it's kind of a weird thing. This is philosophical perhaps but tabletop designs focused a lot on having balanced experiences with kind of varied play groups and that's super good and league of legends is not that kind of game and a lot of like older tabletop games are not that kind of game and certainly you know, the ones that people play as a lifestyle you know if i'm a experienced magic player i should be able to be a person that's never played before but if i'm an experienced honey looker i don't know ticket to ride play no that's pro- you probably really win ticket to ride i don't know if i'm an experienced ticket to ride player people would respect the game less if I like beat someone 127 to two all the time. <laughs> like it looks more, more reasonable, the, the spread. Right. Right. And so most of that's achieved with these, I forgot the word we want again, negative feedback, regulating, balancing, balancing. Cause it's balanced. Yes. See, it's so good. And I'm just the worst, um, balancing <laughs> feedback loops. Like that's a, a lot of that's because most of these games do have these balancing feedback loops and that encourages like a mixed play group to be able to like enjoy the game and not just get completely ruined a lot of the time. I think probably you'd see it more in games that are very competitively oriented or tournament oriented, where maybe the, the desire for the game designer would be that the game ends when it's clear someone's winning rather than the game goes and every like it's not as much concerned with the satisfaction of the entire play group as it is determining the winner yeah i think that makes a lot of sense yeah and something like league of legends can can get away with it because it, it that that's one of the ones that has like the big esports scene right yeah it's definitely very much oriented about determining the team that won the game and less so about everybody played league of legends together and had a great time <laughs> which isn't ever true actually so uh <laughs> 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 some people had a good time some people had a miserable time yeah a couple people had a really really good time <laughs> anything else about feedback loops before we move to our last loop nope all right so the last loop is called an uda loop and this might be a new term for listeners so uda is o-o-d-a it's an acronym and it stands for observe orient Decide and act. This actually comes from the United States military. Uh, so this mm. is this is a, a military concept. And so when they were doing like not necessarily just battlefield, but kind of any kind of military strategy, they they kind of adopted this this type of. It's sort of a feedback loop as we're going to talk about, but it's sort of its own thing as well. So the the four steps. So observe. Observe is kind of what you might think it is you're you're gathering information and you might also not necessarily gather information but it might be given to you so you might accept information orient might not be what you think because it wasn't what i thought it meant Uh, orient is actually filtering that information through whatever your filters are and the filters can be previous experience it could be cultural 
uh, experience or cultural traditions. There's a couple other kind of standard filters. Uh, so it's not necessarily like orient as in uh, spatially. It's orient more in your perception, I guess I would say. And then decide is, of course, uh, deciding what decision you're going to make, and acting is then carrying out that decision. So three of the four, I think, are are pretty self-explanatory, and only orient might be something that is a little different. So an OODA loop, and the reason why I brought up the Manhattan Project uh, a couple minutes ago is I think actually is a tabletop game that has a really strong OODA loop in it. And I didn't really think about this until we kind of started researching into uh, loops. And now that I'm looking at it through this loop lens, it's even, from my perspective, even a more interesting game. So the Manhattan Project, as we said, it's worker placement. You... Your, your, the core design loop is placing a worker, getting stuff for the most part. But the OODA loop is the individual player of when they're going to choose to take all their workers back for their turn. And that loop is how that loop interacts with the other players' OODA loops, I think is what, what makes that game just much more interesting than a lot of other worker placement games that, that don't have that type of thing, that, that are much more focused on the core design loop and don't have as strong of, a, of an OODA loop. So I know, Drew, you have played the Manhattan Project, and Burke, you have not, but now you're going to, because... Uh, we're, it sounds cool. Yeah, it, it really is a, is a cool yeah, game. It is cool. Yeah. Does that seem like a reasonable way to kind of analyze that game, uh, that players have an OODA loop? In the sense that uh, one of the really important elements of like player interaction in that game is that timing aspect and deciding when it's right to make that your action instead of you know placing another worker or uh, doing something else I, I think that's the only other thing you can do right so instead of placing a worker on a building deciding to recall your workers i think you can you can get like a bomb card i think separately or something i can't remember now if it takes a worker so yeah yeah so in, in that sense I, I think that's definitely definitely a good way of characterizing it Getting back at something we talked about previously, the ability for you to get someone to have made the wrong decision via your interaction is really important to that game. And I think uh, to making it so that someone doesn't just steamroll and run away with it. Someone decides to put another worker down because of how they evaluated the situation. If you are able to you know, correctly time it so that even if their engine is stronger than yours, they're going to have to recall their workers at a really inopportune time, or they have you know, more better workers than you do, but they're not going to be able to make very good use of them because the board's currently full, or all the, all the spots where they could go are, are in use. Yeah, no, I think that that's a big part of what makes that game interesting and keeps it from spinning up to kind of the ridiculous heights of some other kind of worker placement or engine building kind of games right yeah i think it i think being able to get your own loop out in front of someone else's loop is what prevents generally there being like a really big snowball in that game yeah and because i think that's because it is you know like we talked about it's it it is uh, an engine builder uh in a sense and engine builders have the capability of just having a snowball happen uh, due to sort of their their nature. And yeah, so I, I think it's just really, I shouldn't say a little twist, because it's not a little twist, but that ability for a player to get their sort of their own personal loop a little bit ahead of someone else's loop, and that gives them an advantage. And, like, and I like the way you put it, Drew, of either you know, forcing or persuading someone else to make a bad play that they may not realize, which allows you to get your loop ahead of theirs. I, I, I just think that makes that game just absolutely fascinating. Yeah, if you can do something that's uh, 
not so obviously this is I mean it's pretty typical but being unpredictable gives you a benefit in that game because of these loops right you can filter out a lot of information and think okay I'm gonna do this and then do this and then pick up my guys and that's gonna be uh, how I'm gonna progress if someone does something that you inadvertently filtered out when you're making those decisions uh, it can really change what you're gonna do uh, a lot more so than in maybe other worker placement games I think so that ability is just I don't know it, it can really kind of literally throw a wrench in the works yeah and I think the the unpredictability there is the key and the person who came up with the OODA loop, uh, his name is John Boyd, Colonel John Boyd, I should use his title. He, he actually said that one of the things that you can do to kind of get inside someone else's OODA loop, so yours is, you're basically you're looping through, or you're moving through your loop faster, is to sort of do something randomly or unexpectedly, because that will cause more information to flow into someone else's, else's OODA loop, which will cause them to slow down, because uh, they will have to process all that information. And now that I'm looking at it, like board games from like this warfare loop kind of perspective, that's really interesting, and I have to try that next time we play. You know, something at the uh, at the armory, just do something really unexpected and see how that makes people's you know brains either cope or frazzle uh, with that. We were talking about San Juan, uh, or I, I guess we just mentioned San Juan earlier. But now that I think about it, because San Juan has role selection in it, that actually has sort of each player having their own OODA loop, where. I don't think you can do it quite as effectively as you can do in the Manhattan Project, but if you can get someone else to select a role, and then you are able to select a role, it's going to be way more beneficial for you, and it's going to cause the other player to not have as much of a benefit, then you can get your loop ahead of theirs and be able to yeah, start, you know, get out in front and, and take a, a lead in that game. And that's usually through just controlling the amount of cards that people can get since cards are effectively uh, resources in that game can you think of another game that has almost like a really strong built-in OODA loop bringing up role selection made me think of games like like Roll for the Galaxy and Race for the Galaxy where you get some benefit if the other player um, is choosing a role but I don't know how much you get into their you know like playing a psychological game with them as much as you're trying to outguess them sometimes and Roll for the Galaxy comes down to dice anyway, so you don't necessarily know what they got. <laughs> oh, you're going to make Drew's head explode. I can see it. <laughs> I don't know. It's now, the best game of 2015. <laughs> I, I think when you have like roll selection like that, like like Roll for the Galaxy or Race for the Galaxy, since they, they both have... I guess it's... It's more action selection than roll selection, but similar. Oh, okay, yeah. Su- super similar. I think that is... A really interesting example of like a, an OODA loop where if you don't do the thing that people are expecting you to do, that can throw them off and you can get your loop processing faster than they can get their loop processing. And then you might be able to get the upper hand. So if if it looks like you're set up to take, I don't know, uh, what is it, colonize? Is that the one where you can uh, play a tile if, if it's roll? What, what's the one where you can actually play like a new... You can either yeah, colonize or develop... Yeah. Or yeah, yeah. So if if you're set up like it's very clear that you're set up to like develop, but you don't actually pick develop. You know, you you pick other things that are going to benefit you and then if no one else picks develop, you know, you're going to pick it maybe the the subsequent round. Like that could really throw someone else off if they were basing their decisions off of you picking develop and then maybe the develop action is not selected for this round. 
And also choosing when to ship in that game might also fall into that same category. So Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so I think uh, Roll and Race are good examples of, of games that kind of have in have that uh, that built-in, or, or I guess I shouldn't say necessarily built-in, but a much stronger OODA loop that come out in the design. Yeah. They give you an opportunity to break into, you were talking about breaking into someone, being in some, inside someone else's OODA loop, just doing that faster. I think... That metaphor works really well with Manhattan Project because of the way that the turn structure works, although in most turn-based games maybe it wouldn't stick as strongly. But it also lets you get into their engine's feedback loop. Mm. So if I have a bunch of production planets, I can do produce and get a lot of resources and then use those resources to get, you know, depending on whatever game I'm talking about, get the money or get points different things that i'm able to do but if you're able to see that i'm doing that and either piggyback off of it to get free stuff at my expense get your stuff when my planets are at capacity right like in, in all those games san juan and race of the galaxy there's there's that element where my buildings are full yeah so i can no longer like my engine has to stop being effective at that point for you um, and taking advantage of that lets you kind of overcome someone who has more stuff in a way that's maybe not as straightforward as you know power grid you have less money so you go first but it has kind of a similar effect yeah and i, I think you're right that in like a traditional or or games that have more of, of a turn-based structure and not a round-based or or yeah. other or other type of structure are probably a little bit more difficult to do that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, you, 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 it does seem like you need some type of you know non turn based structure or something additional on there. Like for example, like San Juan has where you have those that shared pool of actions, even though on your turn. You know, you're you're choosing something, but you're also doing things on other players' turns. I guess Glory for Rome would be another really good example where you might set up some clients in order to be able to follow other people's actions without actually needing to, you know, you can still think and follow, you know, basically by having clients set up in that way. Yeah, so the OODA loops, uh, I'm not sure how they should be analyzed in terms of game design. It is something I wanted to bring up because I think it's something that isn't really talked about very much. I don't know. Do either of you have any ideas of how you can kind of utilize this in a design? Or is this more just from player's point of view? It feels like it's more on the player side, but I suppose, you know, as you were talking about with the structure of the game and how people are deciding or players are deciding what actions they're going to do, it might want to encourage that sort of you know additional level of thinking about what they're going to do so you're playing that psychological getting them to play that psychological game which kind of heightens attention and makes it more interesting makes the decisions more interesting yeah i think that designing towards this generally what you're going to do is make sure that a player can observe effectively the consequences of other players actions but that there's enough stuff in the game state that when they're orienting themselves towards specific pieces of information there's opportunity for other players to do something unpredictable so there's enough different things that other players could do that accounting for them all is not something that's feasible i guess or reliably accounting for them all is not something that's feasible. And then when something happens, I can effectively uh, understand the outcome of that action and then build that into what information I want to look at next time. It sounds like you're, you're saying, you know, building into your design, like the ability to surprise. Yeah. So there needs to be enough, enough, 
enough breadth, I guess, for someone to do something that a good player wouldn't have maybe necessarily taken into account. Although, again, it's hard because with a tabletop game, the best player could conceivably sit there and think about every possible card that anyone could buy. And probably that is the best player, actually. Like, in all honesty, that's the best tabletop player. I looked at everything that you could buy and how that would affect me, and it turns out that I can't let you buy that card. So I thought about all of them. And I think all the games that we mentioned don't necessarily have that property, but they have it to where if you were doing that, someone would probably shout at you or sigh exasperatedly. <laughs> and then you'd have to like you have to stop at some point. You have to create a reasonable filter on the information in the game. Yeah, and that's just the uh, the AP loop. Yeah. It's well, weird. I mean, it is, right? Right. Yeah, oh yeah. Because there's no real time in these games, I can just, my orient, I guess, you described it as a as like a filter, right? On yeah. the information I'm looking at. Yeah. It could be nothing. I don't filter any of it, and I look at everything. <laughs> I just pick <laughs> um, randomly. Right. No, yeah. I don't pick randomly. I pick really smartly, but I look at every single thing. My oh, heuristic is yeah. analyze everything until the end of the game and <laughs> figure it out. Yeah, and, and what you're describing it is walking the heuristic tree you know so yeah. when you're the beginner you know you know this much and as as people surprise you you learn more and as people do things that you didn't realize could be done you learn more and you, and etc and so yeah it, it seems like like that would be a very important uh, part to to make sure you build into your your game and yeah, so like you said, Drew, in the Orient step, that there's got to be a way to do something uh, surprising or, or I hate to say unpredictable because that makes it sound like like a like a random game, you know. It, but it's not though. It's if the game is entirely predictable, then it's there's not much reason to play it. So you people don't like randomness a lot, but like a, an entirely predictable game that if we're going to go with technical definitions isn't random, uh, maybe Candyland. Like those cards are set up. I know what the outcome is. I could just lay them out and having them laid out doesn't make the game better. If if everything in the game is predictable and what action is good for a player to take at any point is obvious, why would I play it? I look at it and say, okay, well, Matt would win. Good. So having the ability for someone to do something that unpredictable just is the best word for that. Right? I guess I want to say like do something that's not where the surprise not obvious. It's not unforeseen. Obvious. Uh, yeah. uh, unforeseen. Sure. I, actually, I like that better. Yeah, because yeah, un- unpredictable. Yeah, it just sounds like well, I couldn't predict the die roll or something. You know, something more more like in a Mary style game instead of like a Euro style game. And so, yeah, unforeseen. I, I like that. I think that that would be the, the best way to put it. I think probably the, the most Euro-friendly way of putting something like that, unforeseen, right? Yeah. The the intentions of your opponent aren't obvious, right? Yeah. So yeah. I, on your turn, I have to do some processing to figure out what I think you want to do, and I could be wrong. Even if there's no randomness in the game, having that ability would make it more interesting. Maybe that would be something like the complaint and Splendor uh, that you're having. Generally, I could look at what stuff my opponent has and be like, you would probably like to buy this card quite a lot. Oh, you bought it. Um, <laughs> and maybe I can't. I can I can interfere with that a bit, right? Like, I can take your card. Right. Yeah, I can take it into my hand. Right. I'm going to bank this. Yeah. And it does nothing for me, and it goes against my hand limit, but yeah. Maybe I can build it, right? But yeah. So I, I got out in front of it and was able to change what you are going to want to do now. I think that is very reasonable. Thank you, Burke, for the better terminology. <laughs> so I can forget it constantly? That's Hey, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, oh. 
We got to work on your feedback loop for sure. <laughs> yeah, I didn't learn any of that stuff. The the last question I have about loops, and and this might be this is more of a theory that I think I'm starting to build, and maybe you guys can tell me if I'm crazy. But I'm starting to think that the larger the loop, uh, in terms of like the core design loop and potentially the feedback loop, the more difficult it is to understand the game. And potentially, the harder it is to play and the harder it is to understand, and depending on the player, the less likely they are to play again. Trying to think of a good example, which I can't think of off the top of my head, but when playing a game and you, you're, you're in that state where like I have no idea what I should do, and you, then you eventually you do something, and uh. you don't... Uh, well, and then maybe... like. It, you don't understand the outcome in the game of that decision until maybe very, very further into the game, or I don't know, maybe you never understand, which seems really bad. To me, that means like there's a very, very large loop in the game, and it might be too large. And and, and here I'm, I'm, this could be the core design loop, or it could be the feedback loop uh, in 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 the game. Like if you if you play a card and you don't realize that that card actually caused you to lose a ton of resources until like seven rounds from now. Like to me, that seems like that's a really big loop and that's probably, probably in general going to be a bad thing. So I don't know. Does that seem like a reasonable statement or do you guys, is that, am I being too broad uh, with, with that hypothesis? I think you're right. If, if, if the um, benefit that you get is deferred too long in the game and you don't have any other metrics that you can, gauge how well you're doing you know it's difficult to decide what you're going to do from turn to turn it can it can be overwhelming it's like i have no idea what i should be doing here because i I don't know how this is going to turn out and all the other players decisions you know are getting in the way of me seeing how how good that payout is going to be later on down the road so this is colliding a little bit with some of my research stuff oh good i think yeah no it's wonderful i get to talk about my research which is which is always fun it is that sounded unenthusiastic but it actually is always fun sort of it seems like what you're talking about is the impact of delayed feedback versus immediate feedback so when i take an action how soon do i know that was good or that was bad like how soon does something in the game let me know that answer right yeah i think so yeah and what's really interesting is some of the research that's come out uh, relating to that in like tutoring systems and learning systems. So uh, it's actually still an open question there whether or not uh, or which which of those things is preferable in which types of situations. But the general trend seems to be that delayed feedback is better for learning in some majority of cases, Maybe not a super strong majority, but some majority of cases. And immediate feedback is better for perception and uh, performance. So I feel better about how I did in the system, and I actually do better in the system with immediate feedback. But I learn more about whatever the system's trying to tell me with somewhat delayed feedback. And a lot of the research that's done varies on how delayed that feedback is, right? It could be something like answer five problems, and at the end I tell you how you did on all five of those. Or it could be something like finish the whole system and I grade you. So it could be you know various different kinds of delay. But I think that that kind of makes sense if I look at board games through that lens. A game with a bigger distance between my action and the payout of that action 
it's probably a game where there's a lot of space for me to get better at doing the things in the game. And if I played it a few times, I would probably exhibit like this market improvement. But maybe it's not so fun that I play it multiple times. Whereas a game that gives me kind of immediate feedback on doing stuff... Probably pretty quickly I'm going to figure out the like my, my heuristic for that game or my idea of what's good to do in that game. It's going to improve really quickly for what to do inside that game, but I'm probably not going to like keep getting better. And probably not going to continue thinking about the model of that game maybe between plays, right? There's not as much depth, so I'm not going to kind of think about developing it and think about learning a new strategy for it. As much as, okay, well, the game told me this is good, so I'll do that. So, I don't know. I think that's pretty... I think it correlates pretty strongly, like, for me, the, those those ideas. Because games, I think, are pretty much learning systems, but they're just not teaching you cool stuff like programming. Uh, they're teaching you how to be good at Age of Steam. Okay, so, in, and I think that ties back to what you said earlier, Drew, about, yeah, the point salad type game. Where, yeah, you know, you get a little bit of points now, but later on, almost all of that style of game has some type of end game points you know, like mm-hmm. set collection or, or objectives or whatever. And so that's kind of your long-term feedback or, or grading. And, but those short-term in, intermediate things were, you know, those were the thumbs up. It was like, good job, buddy. You, you were, you're doing good there. Or even if you think of something like Ticket to Ride, where, you know, you have those short-term completing a, you know, a, a segment, and then long-term you've got the tickets and those so it feels really good to you know complete the individual segment on the board, but then how that fits into your ticket at the end gives you a lot of feedback of like how you did compared to the other players uh, by the end of the game. So yeah, maybe maybe that's sort of the uh, the key there. Even if you have a really long loop, as long as you're getting as long as the feedback loop isn't gigantic or if there's potentially multiple feedback loops that are going on, which there probably are, if you're getting that if the core design loop gives you perception feedback soon if the either the balancing or the reinforcing feedback loop you know happens a little sooner you know that and and helps you to understand what you're doing that seems like yeah that's probably going to be a stronger design anything else we want to mention about loops we may have said it all let's go back to the beginning actually (laughs) 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 all right that was really good. I, I can write good jokes for you. Follow me on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go into our news segment here. Uh, we only have one piece of news, but it's super important. If you happen to be in the Durham, Raleigh, Chapel Hill area of North Carolina, we are having an Unpub Mini at Atomic Empire in Durham on May 21st, starting at 1 p.m., uh, Unpub Mini, if you don't know, is a smaller version of the main Unpub uh, convention. We have a whole bunch of designers have table. They are looking for playtesters to play their games and provide feedback for them so we can uh, get our, our games better and improve them. And maybe we'll try analyzing our loops uh, in our games. We're going to have 18 tables, so we need lots and lots and lots of playtesters to come out. We're also giving away 120 games to playtesters. And the way that's going to work is you're going to uh, playtest a game, and then you turn in the ticket that the designer gives you, and you get to pick a game off of the uh, table. We're also going to be uh, giving away uh, games. There's going to be a raffle at, I believe it's going to be 4.30 and 7.30 for a big bag of, of games that are going to be different than the ones that you get to pick uh, from the front table just for playtesting. So... 
you have potential to get lots of uh, free games uh, just by coming out, playtesting games, giving designers feedback, and generally it's it's been a really fun time the last couple of years that, that we've been doing it uh, at Atomic Empire. I will have a link to the event in the show notes for the episode, so you can go to the Facebook event and RSVP. And if you have any questions about it, you can contact uh, me either through BGG on Twitter uh, on Twitter, I'm at Matt Wolf with an E on the end of Wolf, and same thing on uh, BGG. And Drew, where can people contact you to get more jokes? Oh man, uh, I'm everywhere, but I'm especially on Twitter at Even Weirder Move, and I'm on BGG at An Even Weirder Move, which is too long for the Twitter username because they hate me specifically. That is actually true, because because you were trying to uh, do a distributed denial of service attack. Oh Twitter. yeah, yeah, I wanted to DDoS BGG today. <laughs> And doing it all with puns. It's horrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Burke, uh, where can people contact you if they would like to not get puns? Yeah, I'm not a. I hate puns. Terrible. Best place to find me is on Twitter, and it's at Real Burke Drew. All right. If you have enjoyed this episode, please join our guild on Board Game Geek. If you go to podcast.gdofnc.com, that's going to redirect you to our guild on BGG. And we have uh, conversations for each episode going on in the guild, so uh, please go on and give us your opinion on how we're doing. I have one more pun. I have a pun. It's That's good. Dope. Oh, too late. No, we ran out of time. No, uh, we, we also have a group. Man. We it's also, man. No, Get it? No, no one's hearing, no one's hearing <laughs> this. We also have a group Twitter account you can follow, <laughs> which is at GD of NC, which of course stands for Game Designers of North Carolina. You can also subscribe to the podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, now through a Google Play Store. They finally launched their uh, podcast aggregation service or through the RSS feed that is provided from our podcast host, Buzzsprout. And that is going to do it for this episode of the Game Designers of North Carolina podcast. Remember to play this episode backwards in a complete loop, and we will see you next time.